Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, the recent news flow on the regulatory crackdown in China has sent Western media outlets into a tailspin. Fear and loathing amongst the institutional investor classes rife, which has provoked wild swings in equity markets. Over the last six weeks, I have read reports and articles questioning whether or not this is indeed the end of China's experiment with capitalism. Is the private sector being marginalised and demoted in the country? Is this the beginning of the end of China's participation in the world trading system? Well, my guest this week certainly doesn't think so. Her name is Alice Wang. She is the manager of the Cuero Capital Bamboo and China Funds. Um, Alice grew up in China. She was educated in the West and after graduating from Yale, returned to Hong Kong to work at Lloyd George Asset Management. She was a superb guest and is a brilliant fund manager and I would thoroughly recommend reading her monthly letters. In this episode, we discuss how she started her career, we introduce her investment philosophy, she discusses how she thinks about investment themes and valuation in China, she draws a distinction between product value and user value and for some of the major tech platforms. She outlines the opportunity costs of holding stocks outside of China and most importantly, she comments on the common misconceptions investing in China. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Alice Wang, welcome to the podcast. Alice, we're going to start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? So I was born in mainland China. And at the time, I remember one of my earliest memories was getting a voucher to get a bicycle. I think it was one of the happiest days of my childhood where we had, you know, as a family, we were able to have a bicycle. And I remember my father would take me to um, school on the bicycle. And of course, now everyone drives cars, right? But I, I remember a few decades ago, this was what China was like. My parents were amongst one of the first wave of educated immigrants to come to the U.S. And I went to a public school and was accepted to Yale. And that was one of also probably the highlights of my young life. And then um, I studied Chinese intellectual history at Yale. I um, actually got in for art. You know, I did a lot of photography in, when I was in high school, enrolled in economics, but decided ultimately that I wanted to study with one particular professor named An Ping Chin, who is a professor of Chinese intellectual history. And so that's what I studied. And I met the person who would introduce me to this career when I was at Yale. So, you know, it's very true. These, these institutions do change your life. And uh, he called me one day when I was in my mid-20s and he said, would you like to come to Hong Kong? And I said, why? And he said, well, we're looking for a China analyst. At the time, I hadn't even studied finance before. I didn't know what a PE ratio was. I didn't even know what a market cap was. I'd never looked at the stock market. Mm -hmm. And I said, why do you think I can do it? And he was like, well, we need someone who understands China. And he said, and I thought of you because we were in the same program together at Yale. So when you started as an investment analyst, as a probably a junior investment analyst, what were you covering? Were you given a certain sector or was it pretty wide ranging? Well, I think you start with what you know. And I think that the easiest thing for me to start with was China Internet. <laughs> you know, it was something that I had had so much interaction with. And it was my first 
entry. So I remember actually, so even though those were my first stock explorations, the first stock I picked that went into portfolio was this company called Travel Sky. Mm-hmm. They're the back end for travel essentially. They're like Amadeus. Exactly. They're like Amadeus. And so that was a great investment for a few years. And we exited around 2018, I think. Well, let's wind forward and let's introduce your fund, um, the Bamboo Fund. You actually run two funds, China Fund and a Bamboo Fund. Bamboo Fund is a a pan-Asian fund. Can you introduce your philosophy and your approach to managing money? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to wanting to invest in exceptional people and exceptional businesses that I think can grow over a long period of time. It's hard to compete with, you know, millions of teams with really good analysts and expect to have an edge, you know, on short term, right? And I think the longer term you go, the more your thoughts on the qualitative aspects of a business, like the management quality or where the industry is going or where the sector is going or where the country is going matter more and more. And especially now, I see it more and more in the realm of geopolitics as well. I think that the things that people are hired for in the industry are financial. They're kind of industry standard at this point. But things that are qualitative are actually, I think, what play out longer term. So that's the that's the premise of it. In China, I think we go into positions expecting to hold them for three, five, ten years. But of course, you know, we're very sensitive to government policy, government direction, government regulation. And, you know, that can affect the longevity of our theses. And just taking a step back and and trying to whittle down your universe, which must be many thousands of stocks. How do you start to sort of screen out the duds, if you will? Do you do it by industry? Do you do it by style? Do you do it by valuation? What's your sort of starting point to your investment process? For China, I think actually, it's actually pretty easy because you first start with your alignment with the policy direction of where the country is going and what the strategic importance of the different sectors are. And so right now I have a pretty large overweight in healthcare. It's about 35% of the portfolio. I think we must be one of the most overweight healthcare funds in China funds. It's about seven times larger than the index weighting of healthcare. We've been out of China internet since um, October, November of last year. We've been trying to align the portfolio towards the goals, industrial automation, made in China, renewables. By the way, renewables is also about national security. It's about weaning the country off of the reliance of foreign sources of energy, which often come from problematic countries on problematic trade routes, right? You know, a lot of this is about seeing how the fund can align itself with the future direction of the country. And then with the rest of the region, actually, I would say, you know, when I launched the China fund, essentially, I felt that it wasn't right to own anything in the bamboo fund that was an opportunity cost, because you have to own companies that you are extraordinary beyond maybe something that you can find in China. Otherwise, you could own something in China, right? It's at heart a bottom-up portfolio. So in China, in Southeast Asia and in India, we're looking at companies that maybe are just slightly behind the trajectory of what China did. So even though I'm out of China internet, I'm still very bullish on internet outside of China, like Kakao or C. You know, these are some of the star kind of internet companies of the year. And some of the themes and some of the leading trends in China, like supply chain diversification, these are kind of the 
ways that we want to look at how to invest in the rest of the region. And it sounds like you employ quite a thematic approach. So for example, being overweight healthcare, taking a view on healthcare in China and wanting to find great companies there. How do you measure or how do you manage idiosyncratic risk? So risk at the stock level and making sure that, you know, the companies are working in the interests of broader shareholders rather than managers. Already in the sectors that we've selected or that were overweight, they tend to be self-selected for better corporate governance and better practices because a lot of these sectors have had a lot of returnees, not just in China, but also in Southeast Asia. You know, the tech companies in China or healthcare companies, they got their training in the West. They are part of that generation, like my mom, who immigrated out in the first wave and came back to set up models of what they saw in the West. And that's not just on the product level, it's also on governance and also on the way that companies are run. This is very different from your traditional kind of sectors in China. And then, of course, the SOEs, which are much more bloated with kind of political relationships and nuances. And in Southeast Asia, you're actually seeing the same thing where a lot of these internet companies have cut their teeth on internet companies in China or internet companies in the West or JVs. So that's kind of one thing that we're looking for. And then, you know, ultimately the idiosyncratic risk a lot of time is just filtering through what is noise. And there is a lot of noise in China specifically. Uh, as we can see now. And so I think if you don't understand China, it can be very easy to just sell and say, I don't understand it. I think I see a lot of Western investors do that. Mm -hmm. The challenge is to figure out how to hold when, you know, when there's a lot of noise from the media, which is not unbiased a lot of the time, and really understand how it fits into longer term direction. For us, the volatility is really part of Chinese investing. And how you get through it is how you generate alpha. And I think it's by holding on to things that will actually deliver. I mean, all of these stocks, if you look at the top three holdings in Ireland, like Wuxi Bio or Billy, like they've all halved multiple times in the last five, 10 years. So we haven't sold them, right? But there are things that have broken thesis wise. And that's, you know, large cap internet, probably education, definitely, which we sold in, in February. So being able to decipher that, that's, I think, the idiosyncratic risk management. You touched on SOEs and state-owned enterprises. Do you have any sectors or particular styles that you are actively avoiding? You know, it's like, hey, no, I, we're not going to ever own this simply because it's structurally challenged. I don't own SOEs because I typically just think the companies that have the best room to grow are ones run by entrepreneurs with singular visions and large addressable markets. But, you know, in terms of sectors, for example, education or China Internet are sectors that have changed dramatically. In the past, I think, when COVID hit, we did get out of all the offline companies in China as well. And so I think that they're more temporary sector adjustments. In terms of hard rules, we're not really, it just tends to be that property and SOE, you know, these sectors tend to be a lot more tied to the government and less free in many ways. And so there's a lot less room, I think, to choose good companies there. Let's think about some stock examples and let's start with China and then move to Southeast Asia. Let's, what companies are you most excited about because of the strength of their competitive position, their ability to push on pricing, 
and the magnitude of their addressable market. What do you put at sort of top of the pops? I think Wuxi Biologics is probably my favorite company in Asia outside TSMC. And I think actually Wuxi Bio, their model is kind of like a TSMC model where they're choosing actually not to go to the brand side. They're choosing to stay as the OEM, as the leading OEM. And I think that, you know, people have realized, and maybe it's because it's becoming easier to do a brand and brands are easier to disrupt now with Instagram and all of these, you know, on the brand side, it's much more democratic than it used to be. It's much easier to reach customers now, whereas actually it's the production process that is technologically more challenging. And you see this, you know, this is why China doesn't really want to go into the kind of made service model of the West. They want to keep the manufacturing processes in country because actually a lot of these are harder to replicate. And, you know, the West, they see what's happened to America, which might have problems with their supply chain in pharmaceuticals, in automation. They don't want that to happen themselves. And Wuxi is actually just a really good example of a company that has a pretty strong, very, very strong position now in biological manufacturing. Not only are they able to um, take advantage of the cheaper labor force in China, uh, of course, blue collar wages are going up, but white collar wages in China are much cheaper relative to the rest of the world. You know, your PhD costs maybe one fourth of the price in China. Add that to their kind of willingness to work very hard. It means that Wuxi Biologics can get a project started within a week or two weeks, whereas your competitors in Germany may take a month or two months. And a month or two months can mean, you know, the difference between being first to market for a biopharmaceutical company. It's a huge difference in terms of what the expected revenue stream is. Other than taking labor costs, it sounds like they can take labor costs out compared to their Western competitors. What other costs are they able to manage more aggressively? So the labor costs give them a competitiveness on time. They don't actually charge much less. They're not competing on price, right? They're actually just competing on efficiency. And then beyond that, I think what they're able to do is kind of an end-to-end product, right? I think they, they have the first line that can take you from very, very early stages of development all the way to manufacturing. And it's a very sticky kind of cycle that could take 10 years, right? It's a really interesting kind of platform model. And also what they've developed is this kind of disposable manufacturing facilities where people thought that it was impossible to do. But that means that it's actually much faster to then switch over the manufacturing to a new product. And then that reduces cost because of the time and the turnover, not because of the cost of the input per se. Well, let's move away from China and, and think about some stocks outside China, perhaps in the Southeast Asian region. Now, the Southeast Asian markets are are characterized by cyclicality, let's face it. I mean, they don't have as high a quality businesses. And I think to use your phrase, you're looking for companies that uh, meet the opportunity cost. What excitements are you finding in Southeast Asia? So C is obviously the one that everyone talks about. And I'm very bullish on that stock. C Limited, the e-commerce play. Yeah, C-Limited, the e-commerce company, which the complaint that people have about it is that it's too expensive. But actually, if you look at a price to GMV basis compared to Coupang or PDD before this capitulation, it's much cheaper. And in terms of diversification, I mean, the, the problem with China Internet is the regulation. And it's, it's much harder to regulate something like C, which is so diversified across so many markets. Are you worried about their expansion in, in Brazil? Well, 
I was, and that was one of the reasons why I was skeptical. But just so far, the execution looks really stellar. Uh, I mean, they do have the number one kind of traffic now in Brazil past Mercado Libre. So they've been able to replicate what they've done in Brazil. And, and I think partly it's because their game side, uh, Free Fire, that's the side that I'm less worried about, actually, is because that that has a very dominant position in LATAM as a game. And so they can leverage that, right? And that that's a really interesting approach, you know, use the game side to kind of enter into new markets. Um, so I like C. I think Korea is one that we've done pretty well in this year. And the Ahibi is the company that I was referring to before, which, um, you know, they're the K-pop company. Uh, they own this, probably the leading boy band in the world, BTS. They've been on the number one in the pop charts for six weeks, you know, ahead of all of the other major stars like Ariana Grande. And by the way, they just bought the company that owns Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber. So they're a global pop star company now. How do you apply your process to that? And specifically on valuation, how do you marry the growth opportunity with the valuation? Well, this one was interesting because right after the IPO, the stock fell like 50%. And so it was valued at about $5 billion or something when we first got in. And I was looking at the models for this company, and it was very clear that the analysts were not pricing in the app that they have, which has you know, 200 million users. The ARPU is really high. Average revenue per user. Average revenue per user. It was $10 or $15 a quarter per user, right? Because these fans are willing to spend quite a lot of money And so, you know, if you have an app like this, if you just isolate it and apply like standard Chinese kind of, you know, valuation methods on MAU and ARPU, just that app alone is worth at least $10 billion. And so the stock was kind of a lot of fears around, you know, what happens if BTS has to go to the army? What happens, you know, with COVID, all these concerts shut down and So can they actually manage their album sales digitally during COVID? There were a lot of fears around that. And actually, there was so much optionality on this company because of its key assets being mispriced. And so it's, you know, to me, that's the kind of thing I want to own outside China, right? Something with a global TAM, something that China hasn't been able to do. And, you know, something also, it was great that it was deeply undervalued because, the analysts were not maybe China internet analysts, you know? And when they bought Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber, I then realized just how massive their ambitions were. So that was also a very interesting catalyst for the stock. I wonder if you can comment on some of the new tech platforms that are due to come to market this year in Southeast Asia. And I'm thinking about Grab, I'm thinking about Gojek, I'm talking, thinking about Tokopedia. How do you assess their value proposition to some of their China counterparts, given that the cost of doing business in the the broader ASEAN region is much, much higher than it is in in China? You're right. I also think that C has had such a huge head start Mm. that it's not clear for me, actually, at the moment, if we should actually be investing in any others. I think there's been Pack. That's been the only IPO so far. And that one we kind of just passed on because it seemed like... It's the Indonesian. Least, yes, it's the Indonesian one. It seemed like the least well-managed of them. 
And in terms of execution, it also seemed like it was below the rest. But I think in, in terms of e-commerce, and you see this with PDD and a lot of these other companies, like investors are really only looking at GMV top line growth. And then the transition from looking at top line to looking at bottom line can be very, very painful. You know, look at JD, for example. And so I think that in Asia, Southeast Asia, it's still in this phase, this earlier stage phase of top line growth. Whereas, you know, in China, maybe we're looking more at margins now. And in these metrics, I still think that C is the strongest. And then in terms of optionality, in terms of, you know, building an actual ecosystem, which is what Alibaba and Tencent have, I still think that C has the best um, potential on that. So we're still looking, but, you know, I I think I haven't found anything yet that is truly rivaling what we already own at the moment. Just on that and building the ecosystems, I wonder if you can explain the power of uh, the WeChat platform. Um, Tencent's WeChat platform and can try and compare it, if you can, to a, the nearest Western rival. There's nothing really like it. And I think that that's part of the problem for Tencent right now. And also for Alibaba it is precisely the monopolistic kind of reach of their platforms. But, you know, regulation aside, you see this, you know, one of the reasons why I invested in Kakao was because of its uh, strength in their kind of mobile communication app. They are like the Tencent equivalent, whereas Neighbor is more like Baidu, their web search. In Korea, this is the, these are both Korean. This is in Korea. So one of the things that we saw in China was that when you can dominate actually the messaging platform like WhatsApp or WeChat, you can also dominate a lot of the things that people like to do in their phones, the primary one being that of payment. And so CalPay actually did exactly the same thing was able to leverage their messaging app to become the leading kind of payment uh, service portal in Korea. And so that's what we like about some of these companies. Whereas, you know, I always had a preference for Tencent over Baba because whereas Tencent can kind of leverage their platform and into different kinds of verticals, you know, Alibaba is really just trying to monetize through e-commerce. So everything that it's doing that Alibaba is doing is actually trying to convert and make it easier for vendors. And so if you look at their M&A strategy, it's very different, whereas Tencent can add a lot of value to its verticals and its acquisitions. You know, Baba is looking at their acquisitions to drive more traffic, right? I mean, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying this, but there's a difference between how platforms develop and also where the core assets are. And, you know, we can look at these models in Asia because the Asian models have always been focused around building super platforms, right? Like Tencent and Alibaba. Whereas in the West, there was always more of a focus in on specialization. The West has, you know, these, the internet giants have key products that they're all very good at the verticals. Whereas the Chinese one is, the competition is always around how do we get the user? How do we get the most user engagement? And when we have that, then we can expand and have all the optionality in terms of different verticals, right? And so when we're looking ex-China into Southeast Asia, those are also kind of the considerations that we have. You know, Billy Billy is an interesting one. A video platform. Yeah. Billy Billy is a, a video game platform in China that started off with the anime manga segment. And it's a niche segment, but it's one that, you know, young people love. 
And so their user value comes from the fact that they have kind of an iron grip on, you know, probably the most valuable consumer segment in China. And so again, the product is the starting point, but it's actually the user that we're going for. And how do we monetize the user? And that's how you value these companies is, you know, what is ultimately the value of the user? Because for a company like Netflix or something, right, your monetization is how much you can get them to pay per month, right? But something like Billy, you can get advertising, you can get games, you can get videos, you can do e-commerce partnerships because what they're after is that user, right? So this is um, where the Chinese models, I think, differ from the internet ethos of the West. Let's change tack and think about regulation. How do the regulators in China differ to the regulators in the West when they are conjuring up regulation on the technology industry? And then second question, what are the key things that Western investors misunderstand about regulation in China? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think we should start from where they're similar. And I think that there's actually a lot more similarities between the West and China than people think. A quick history lesson on U.S. regulations is that, you know, industrialization in the West took place over a period of a few hundred years. And at the end of it, there were a lot of practices introduced to rein in malpractices, such as child labor laws. You know, such as the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, because there were so much toxic foods and rotten foods on the market. There was the SEC and there was the Fed introduced in early 20th century. You know, all of these things were meant to rein in some of the bad behaviors of some of the industries um, under kind of unfettered capitalism. Right. And, you know, when I first started the job, Robert gave me a book called Memoirs of a Stockbroker you know, which is required reading. But you can see, like, it was not that long ago that Western markets were also completely dominated by retail investors. So China has basically gone through a super accelerated version of industrialization and technology, you know, change at the same time, right? And leapfrogged quite a few steps as well, right? For example, some of them never even had credit cards. They jumped straight to mobile payment and social credit, right? And so there's a lot of steps missing. It was also super fast paced. It shouldn't be of any surprise that there have been some problems that built up over this period, um, just as the West has. And the funny thing is, you know, I think Warren Buffett's father thought that FDR was like Lenin because of everything that he was doing. And so... It also doesn't surprise me that the West looks at what China is doing now and says like, oh, you know, they must be looking to shut down all of private enterprise. But if you look at the Politburo, you know, six of their members were born in 1950. They were teens during the Cultural Revolution. There were a lot of deaths under about 60 million, right? 60, 70 million. And they lived through that time. And so I think that they're more aware of anyone than the dangers and how Deng Xiaoping saved them, right? So to say that this is kind of a return of, you know, communism is, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of both of, you know, Western history and Chinese history. So that's kind of the broader landscape. Now, Exactly what has been the case in internet is I think internet regulations are happening all over the world because people are finally starting to deal with the fact that these guys are not startups anymore. You know, they're actually control a lot of information. They may walk around in t-shirts and jeans and hoodies, but actually what value do they really provide? I mean, like Amazon, you know, these companies, they make it 17 cents cheaper to get a book to your home, but at what cost? 
the cost of hundreds of thousands of mom and pop stores at the cost of like all these delivery drivers having minimum wage jobs, right? That's the cost. And, and the benefit is you get it fast. You get it two hours faster than you would have. And I think the government says, okay, well, we give people all the freedom. And what do they want? They want Kim Kardashian delivered to your phone 17 seconds earlier, right? I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but like, why is this sector, this internet sector, therefore 40% of the MSCI index? And I talk to Western investors and basically the only industry they ever ask me about is internet. And I always say I've been bullish on healthcare for many years now. It's not a new thing, but they're kind of like my secret stocks. And in fact, they're 40% of my portfolio. But I think the government actually is saying, well, we want actually the money to channel into things that are more productive for our society and actually value add because internet is has become zero sum. What person in China doesn't own a smartphone, isn't on Alibaba, isn't you know already consuming? And actually right now what you're seeing is a continuous land grab because it's fully saturated. It really is. It's very zero sum now. My, one of my first jobs in China was I helped Groupon expand to China with a Tencent JV venture. And there, I remember my first day, my boss said, meeting at 9 p.m. on Monday. (laughs) And it was an all-team meeting. And I quickly realized that like a third of the sales staff got fired every Monday at 9 p.m. based off of their performance last week. That was my introduction to like China internet working culture. There's that funny phrase, 996. 996, exactly. And it was really one of my first jobs. So I thought, wow, this is like what working life is like. Until I, you know, ended up in the hospital at the end of, you know, three months of doing this. And, you know, you can imagine this is like the culture of all these companies. So they said, you know, maybe we don't have child labor and maybe these people are voluntarily working these hours. But ultimately, it's still a toxic culture. So it does need to be regulated. Right. So what does it come at the expense of? Maybe the margins go down because they have to hire more people. But the intention is not to kill Internet. It's just to clean up some of these bad practices that have built up. Well, how then do you assess the regulatory risk on the healthcare system? You're 35% overweight, given that, you know, if you start to see significant pricing increases in healthcare, Mm -hmm. that would hit the the middle classes quite hard and could, could be put under the the microscope of the regulator. Well, yeah, so that's interesting because healthcare has actually been one of the most regulated industries in China for the last four years. When we started buying it, it had been one of the most sold off industries because of how the two-tier pricing system, when the two-tier pricing system was introduced, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think, you know, the reason why the healthcare sector will grow is because China simply cannot afford Western drugs. You know, even like Westerners can't afford Western drugs. You know, that's a direct result of American policy, you know. And so the Chinese policy is to say we're going to guarantee bulk buying and reduce all the middlemen in the system. It's called two tier system. And then that way we allow, you know, companies to make more profit margins because they don't have the sales layer, the additional sales and marketing layers which are hugely costly. And then we give them volume, right? So in that way, it makes up for this. And then that we also are able to bring down the drug prices. And so what's really amazing about these companies is, first of all, they have the know-how from Western drug companies. I do fundamentally believe that, you know, drugs are slightly easier than semiconductors. 
there are technologies that are much, much harder to do, like semiconductor. Only Taiwan can do it basically at this point, not even the US. Intel can't even do it, right? So that shows you it's not, it's really not just culture, country, capital. It's very hard to do. Whereas drugs, you know, I don't think there's like a significant, huge difference between most of the PD-1s on the market. They're kind of interchangeable. But in the US, these drugs, the PD-1 costs $150,000, you know? And in China, Innovin, which we've invested in, uh, they brought down the price to $10,000. And so it makes it affordable and reimbursable. And the best thing is they probably have a global market. They can actually make these drugs accessible to everyone in the world. And that's actually a net value add to the whole world. What's the margin differential on those two? Because presumably they have to sacrifice margin by producing drugs so cheaply. Oh, no, no, no. So actually the Innovin's margins are just as high as U.S. companies. Firstly, because of the volume. And then, like I said, they've gotten rid of all the sales and marketing layers in between, which were the highest kind of profit eaters. So for Innovant or any of these companies, they can actually help drive healthcare deflation around the world, just in the same way that China made it possible for people to afford consumer clothing and goods, you know, over the last 20 years with globalization, the next wave of deflation, I think, will come from China white collar labor being able to produce things much cheaper. And a combination of white collar labor, a combination of returnees, the technology transfer, and then combination of government policy. So in China, there is regulation risk for sure. And what I found is that what it means is it's, it's often not the like first to market or the best in class that wins in China, whereas in the West, it's all about innovation. It's all about having the best drug and being fastest to market. In China, it's often about execution. It's about can you be good enough? And in the case of medical devices, for example, they're competing on things like service. Western medical device providers cannot come and show up at your office on the day of and fix it, right? Whereas a Chinese company will be able to provide that after service. And it makes a big difference. There are different kind of priorities. And then for regulation, probably will still continue. Regulation, by the way, will probably continue on every sector in China, some more than others. But I think overall, China is going through a adjustment process that is meant to have a more sustainable kind of future for the country. In the case of education, I mean, this is really a sector that foreigners did not understand. There is no tutoring company listed anywhere in the US. And I would doubt that there's any listed in Europe. It's really a sector that doesn't exist. Maybe it was just an anomaly that you had billion-dollar tutoring companies in China. The market was, what, 100 billion? Yeah, it was 100 billion. They were really taking advantage of these Confucian ideals and parents' willingness to spend on children's education. And so you had poor families basically driving all of their savings into getting these kids, and they don't have really nice lives. You know, my cousins, they spend all of their time studying from like nine to nine on a weekday, on the weekends, over their holidays. They don't have a life for anything. And you know what? The worst part is they're not even learning. They're just learning how to take a test. That's very different from actually learning. And they're not taught the joy of critical thinking, of learning to learn, right? They're, they're actually going to these classes because they're afraid that their peers will do better on the test than they will. And so this is a kind of toxic culture. And if we're talking about ESG, this is a horrible model. 
So I think what you're saying is beware the company that is is screwing over the middle classes because eventually they will come under the microscope of the regulator. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely where we see the risks is anything that is consumer facing is under greater risk. So one sector that has been really bombed, but we do think is kind of unreasonable is SaaS. So industrial software, because that actually isn't really consumer facing. So it is internet, it is software, but it's actually servicing industries. And these are kind of new segments. Industrial software is probably 10 years behind where it is in the West, right? Like these are very much smaller segments. I would say, you know, the the consumer facing, this is where you have the biggest risk. And you have a lot of companies like live streaming companies that have like semi-pornographic material on their websites. I mean, these are kinds of companies that I think would be most at risk. And, you know, the government is always very clever. You know, for example, like they expressed a lot of concern with this company called this Pop Mart, which is they make toys, but they had these like a uh, lot mystery boxes that they sell. And basically you can, you buy it and then you may or may not get some super rare toy. And so actually the government filed it under gambling and said it promotes like gambling practices, right? And, you know, this is something that I never thought of, but you think about it from the government's perspective and you're like, okay, wow, okay, I totally understand that. And it's funny because Americans often complain about how little the government does and like how far behind they are on things, you know, on financial regulations or on internet regulations, right? And then the Chinese government is probably like slightly one step ahead. And then they say, oh, the Chinese government is like, authoritarian. So which way do you want to have it? See it from the counterfactuals, what I think. I wonder if you can comment on the commodity complex. China is the marginal buyer of steel. I think 70% of steel, worldwide steel is consumed in China, 58% copper. If China is indeed moving away or moving to a sort of greener future, what does it mean for the commodity complex more broadly? The irony about a green future is that a green future is actually very commodity intensive. You know, one of the risks that I see is actually like what happens if rare earths actually does price in all of the environmental exogenous prices of mining it. I think my estimates are like it should be like six or seven times more than what it costs now, right? Because China has just, in order to have a monopoly on rare earths, it's just kind of allowed the externalities not to be priced in. And there are lots of dramatic pollution impacts as of it, right? But rare earths is a very critical part of all these EVs, of phones and, you know, electronics. I think it's a very complex topic. We basically have to, like, separate by commodity. I also think, for example, uranium, you know, is one that is, you know, and your friend is such a big investor. In it. And it's true because China is actually realizes that the only way to meet its energy needs is through nuclear. And they're tripling kind of nuclear capacity from kind of Fukushima, right? And so it's not about green. Ultimately, it's still about national security, China is deeply reliant on Russia for LNG. China is reliant on a lot of sea lanes that are very fragile for oil from Middle East and from Africa. And the Chinese naval capacity is not there. And by the way, that's why I think it's very unlikely China can attack Taiwan because their naval capacity is not there. So when we're looking at China's commodity needs going forward, steel will go down because you know, they're very interested in reducing the weight that property plays in the market, right? So property, I think, requires about 25% of the capital of uh, a credit in, in China and only produces like six single digit 
kind of GDP growth, right? And it's also an example of kind of like a, a sector that is very safe, but doesn't produce much. And all it produces is more pressure on family costs and total cost of living. And so property education and uh, childcare costs, these are the three kind of big targets of the government right now because they want to fix their demographic problem. And so when we're talking about commodities, let's bucket the commodities that are under these targeted sectors and then under the sectors that actually enhance Chinese social security. And then we can speak about them that way. Final question, Alice. What advice would you give to either yourself when you were just coming out of Yale or indeed our, our younger listeners who are coming out of school and university who are looking to pursue a career in investment management, what advice would you give to them and what skills do you think they need to equip themselves to make great fund managers or analysts? Well, I think there's a lot of different kinds of funds, but if you want to be doing what I'm doing, which is like fundamental investing in companies, maybe in emerging markets, I do think a required reading from now going forward that I think wasn't so relevant before because we lived under a long period of peace, Pax Americana is geopolitics. I do think that going forward, it will be a risk variable or an alpha generating variable for everyone investing across the world. I think Howard Marks or someone says, you know, the way to outperform 90% of your peers is to not think like 90% of your peers. And I think that that requires always an understanding of what you're good at, but what other people are good at, what are they doing? And so how do you kind of position yourself and what kind of edge or what kind of perspective can you have that other people are not pricing in, right? To think about it that way. And I do think ultimately we focus too much on numbers, especially in a lot of these industries and especially in China. You know, it's very hard to do 10-year projections. These industries may not even be around in 10 years, right? Things can change very quickly. One of my most admired professors in college, he was a great diplomat. And he actually said, you know, in order to understand people or in order to understand countries or diplomacy, you need to read a lot of novels, you know, and I, and I always wondered why, because he invented, and now I understand, because I think novels really teach you about human character. And fundamentally, I think human nature doesn't change. And companies are run by people and the markets they're in, they're people. That's something that I think investors have to understand and maybe have lost because they're so focused on particular niches, like having the best technology, finding the best like ROI, you know, what sustains that ROI? It's people. I agree with my professor. Like, I think, you know, we should read more fiction. We should have broader imaginations. We should think about what, you know, people are capable of doing and believe in their ability to pivot or to go after new parts of business, right? Like, believe that they can do that. I think that that's something that maybe we're, we're missing a little bit now in today's investment landscape. Alice Wang, thank you for joining me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Alice Wang from Quero Capital. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like it and subscribe to it and tell a friend or colleague. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.